God is, <laughs> is, he's so good. And the way that he works, you know, my life verse is in the text that we are going to be studying today. And, and how good of the Lord, you know, we just go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse and we make our way through. And, and I was praying about, gosh, first Sunday in the new building and, and, you know, should I preach something new or should I, you know, do some sort of special message? And really the Lord just impressed upon my heart, no, we're going through the word. This is who we are. Nothing changes. We just continue. So, uh, and so then providentially, here we are, I get to cover my life verse today. So thanking the Lord for that. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 18. Um, <clears throat> and we read, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? That's my life first. No, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> and so they answered, and they said, John the Baptist, but some Elijah, and others say uh, that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and he said, the Christ of God. Now, we left off with the calling and the commissioning of Jesus' disciples uh, to join him in his work. And we took note that Jesus called his disciples to preach the gospel, and he then gave them the power and the authority that they were going to need to preach uh, the gospel. And we saw that Jesus not only called and commissioned his disciples, but uh, Jesus also coached his disciples through the feeding of the 5,000, doing this miraculous work. And there's two aspects, two areas, and two ways in which the Lord coached his disciples. He coached them in their compassion, and he coached them in their capabilities. Coaching them in their compassion, he wanted them to see the multitudes as he saw them, as sheep without a shepherd. And being able to die to themselves and to serve uh, the people, even though they were tired, even though they were promised a retreat and, and all, Jesus wanted them to see the people with his eyes, with the compassion that he had. But he was also coaching them not only in having this compassion, but he's coaching them in their capabilities. And, and, and in twofold aspect of that, he, first of all, he wanted to, them to recognize the limits of their own capabilities. That, hey, if you're going to feed the, the, the multitudes, if you're going to do this work that I've given you to do, it's going to be a task that is bigger than you. And, and so often as we serve the Lord, the task is bigger than us. And so the Lord's coaching them in their capabilities, saying, listen, if you do this in your own strength, then, then you're going to reach, you're going to reach your lid at a certain point, And you're not going to be able to go beyond that. And, and it's a miraculous need. And, and, and it's a miraculous supply. And so Jesus coaching them in the limits of their capacity, but also coaching them in the unlimited capacity of Jesus himself, that, that serving the Lord and responding to his call, something that uh, we do, hey man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and then no doubt, to emphasize the point, Jesus asks them this question that we reread today in verse 20. Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? So that we always bear in mind who is actually doing the work. The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord God guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Now Matthew's gospel records this same incident that we're looking at here in, in Luke chapter 9. And Matthew records it this way. 
He, Jesus, said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, contrary to popular belief, Jesus here was not saying that he was going to build the church on Simon Peter the man. That's not what Jesus was communicating here. What Jesus is communicating to Peter is that he's building his church on Simon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. Everything that God wants to do in us and through us hinges on understanding who Jesus is. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, it is impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. It's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. But as we're going to see today, the question of who Jesus is goes not only to the heart of understanding the power behind the work that Jesus does in and through us, but it also goes to understanding the purpose of Jesus' work in the first place. The purpose of Jesus' work in the first place. Verse 21, and he, Jesus, strictly warned and commanded them. They have made the profession. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And immediately upon that profession, he strictly warned and commanded them (coughs) to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this marks the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Here now, uh, Peter and the disciples, they have come to the knowledge of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of the living God. But they don't yet fully understand Jesus' mission, and that's problematic. They don't understand, they have no concept of the cross, of the resurrection, of the ascension, these things that are coming, the work that, that Jesus came to do. And so Jesus here, he begins to reveal his mission to them. He warns them, hey, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Now, why does he tell them not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah? Well, we need to keep in mind that every Jew understood that God had promised to send the Messiah. They were all anxiously looking for the coming of the Messiah. But, but the Jews of this day, they saw Messiah as a means to an end, uh, to help them establish their kingdom rule on the earth. And so to them, the the Messiah was the guy that was just going to help them get Rome kicked out of of occupying Jerusalem and and of occupying the promised land, and they were going to get their land back, and they were going to get their kingdom back, and they were going to get their earthly rule back. And so that was their whole focus. Uh, They had no concept of righteousness by faith. They thought that they could be made right with God by the keeping of the law, by their own works. And so Messiah was just the person that was going to help them to do the work in and of themselves, so to speak. No concept of righteousness by faith. But listen, the kingdom of God comes through Jesus' mission to die for sin. 
This is something we have to keep central and core to understanding. We have to look to Jesus in the context of his mission and orient our life to his. Why? Because all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. Because all of us, every last one of us, needs to understand that our only hope is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But listen, if people look to Jesus as the means to further their kingdom, then they're totally going to miss it. Now listen, in the same way, many Christians today have the same wrong view of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, look, don't go telling people I'm the Messiah because they're going to be all about, hey, great, you know, you'd be a welcome addition to our kingdom here kind of thing. He's like, no, 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 I, my, my purpose, my mission has to be accomplished. You've got to get that in order to receive me. And, and many Christians say they got the wrong view of Jesus. I'll give you an example. In their book titled Soul Searching, a couple of sociologists, one named Christian Smith, the other Melinda Denton, they interviewed 3,000 Christian teenagers uh, at the turn of the 21st century, and they wanted to know what they believed about God. They were trying to form a consensus of what is the prevailing belief system in the, the, the coming uh, you know, future leaders of the church. And they mapped this prevailing belief system and they termed the belief system moralistic therapeutic deism. And basically, there were five prevailing points of the general consensus of belief system of, of, these, of these teenagers. By the way, this was done long ago such that now these teenagers are basically the, the, the bulwark of the church. We're talking people in their late 20s, early 30s now. So this, this is you know, the general makeup of the church. And so basically, they had, they had five points to their belief system. Number one, they believed that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, they believe that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. So far, so good, right? That's biblical right there. Now it starts to go south. Thirdly, they believe that the, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself, Right? Fourthly, they believed that God doesn't need to be involved in our life except when he's needed to fix a problem. Don't call me, I'll call you, kind of thing. Fifthly, they believe that good people go to heaven when they die. So you can see that this is a problem because there ain't no good people. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? There, there's, there's no one good, no not one, the Bible says. Everyone's turned to his own way. So, so there's a huge problem here. And again, keep in mind, this is people that are now in, in basically in their tw- late 20s, 30-year-olds. So moralistic therapeutic de- deism is the prevailing belief system in many churches today. Uh, this belief system, first of all, it's moralistic in the sense that uh, it takes a moralistic approach to life. Be good, be fair, be nice. Great, that's awesome. It's also therapeutic in the idea that it provides therapeutic benefits to its adherents. In other words, instead of having responsibility to things like repentance from sin, or responsibility to living as a servant of God, or building character through suffering, instead of those biblical attributes, no, it's therapeutic because it relegates God to a genie in the bottle, and he's kind of, you know, this divine butler who's always on call. And also, the, the, the thought process, not only is it therapeutic, but it's also deistic. 
Now understand, uh, deism is a belief system, and it's an ancient belief system. Classic deism basically believes that there is a God who created the world, but that now he doesn't intervene in its affairs. Classic deism basically views God as, hey, God created everything, and then he split, right? And now we're on our own. It's kind of like the Hunger Games. You know, good luck, and may the odds ever be in your favor. Like, that's, that's classic deism. Moral therapeutic deism views it, the belief system in that is that God created everything in split, but now he's on call. And so now, you know, he's this divine butler that you can just call on. He's this divine gene in a bottle. I like the way the author summarized the, this, this belief system. They said, this is how these kids believe. God is selectively available for taking care of our needs. He's something like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise in our life. He helps people to feel better about themselves. And here's the key. He does not become too personally involved in the process. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's really the God of that belief system? You are, right? You're the God of that belief system. Hey, Jesus, I could use a handy guy like you. You'd be great to help me build my kingdom. You use a little bit of patience. I could use some prosperity. I could use some power. And you know what? I'll call you when I need you. Don't bug me, right? Listen, that is not what Jesus came to do. And knowing Jesus means, means that we know and embrace the purpose of his power, right? The purpose of his power. And so the first thing we need to know about Jesus' purpose is that Jesus came to die. That's the first thing we need to know. His purpose is that he came to die. Why? Well, we've said it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 6.23 says. See, the Jews of this day, they had a sacrificial system, and it was in place for them to atone for their sin. And so they would shed the blood of a sacrifice offered by the priest, and, and this is the way they related to God. But listen, that system was always intended, intended to, to look forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It was a symbol of what was to come. That the Lamb of God would shed his blood to take away the sins of mankind. The writer of Hebrews says this, that, <clears throat> hey, we're, we're to look to Jesus who, who is our great high priest, who would give his life a sacrifice of sin, uh, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus put it this way in Mark ten forty five: For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many. But again, here in Luke chapter 9, the disciples don't yet fully understand this. And so Jesus commands them hey, keep a lid on it. Keep a lid on it because I have a mission to complete, and you have to appreciate the mission that I have to do. And then he begins to let them in on the mission. We see there in verse 22, he he begins to tell them hey, look, religious leaders, they're going to deny me, They're, they're going to reject me, they're going to persecute me. They're going to kill me. And, and then, you know, making allusion to his resurrection. I'm going to be raised the third day. 
Now, we see this from the benefit of hindsight. We see this from the benefit of having the whole New Testament. And so, you know, that verse 22, it's obvious to us. But, but the, 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 the disciples need a little bit of time for that light bulb to come on. But Jesus now, he's letting them in on, on the plan and what's going what's gonna to go on. And now Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. Now he turns his attention to them to begin uh, to explain to them, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, here's how you join me on mission. This is what I require of a disciple. And so verse 23, then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the Holy Angels. Verse 23, my life verse. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Understand Jesus here, He's talking about discipleship. He's not talking about sonship. These guys have professed faith in him. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He's not talking about how you get saved. He's saying, all right, you're saved. So as a disciple, as follower of me, this is now what is required of you. <clears throat> so he's articulating how they can join him in, this, in his work. And what we see here in these verses, we see four requirements to being a disciple of Jesus. And we see three stumbling blocks to being a disciple of Jesus. Four requirements, three stumbling blocks. And uh, we only have time to go through the four requirements of being a disciple. Next week, we'll look at the three stumbling blocks to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, write it down. The first requirement of being a disciple of Jesus is desire. Desire. He says, if anyone desires to come after me. Now that word desires, it means literally to will. It means to wish. It means to have a determined mindset. And it's written in the active present tense. The idea is that it's a continual desire. If anyone, this is, this is the amplified version of this text. If anyone continues to desire to continually come after me is what he's saying. You've got to have this kind of desire. In other words, being a disciple, it's not a one-and-done thing. It's not a one-time, hey, I said the prayer, and now I'm a disciple. That's not, that's not the thing. Jesus says, look, this, this, this ain't fire, fire insurance. This is a lifelong commitment. This is an exercise of the will. There, 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 there must be a continual desire. Now, now, that's not to say you won't struggle. You will struggle. Paul, the apostle, wrote by volume two-thirds of the New Testament. Listen to what he said. He says, I don't really understand myself for what I want to do. By the way, that's written in, the, in, the, in the, that, that continual sense. He says, what I continually want to do. He says, I want to continually do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, and again, that's written in the continual sense. I continually want to do what's right, but I can't. This is a guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament saying this. 
<clears throat> he says, I, I, he said, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he goes on and answers his own question. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So as Christians, listen, you're going to struggle with sin, but you should have a continual desire not to. That's the idea. This brings us to the second requirement of being a disciple. Not only do you have to have this desire, this continual desire to follow after the Lord, but the second requirement is denial. Denial. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And again, this is in the active present tense. The idea is that there's a continual denial that you're committed to. In other words, you make a consistent all-day effort to deny your carnal flesh and your carnal desires. Listen, following Jesus isn't a profession and a prayer and then nothing changes in your life. Okay, what it means, it's talking about following Jesus is, is living a new life. It's about learning new behaviors and developing new habits. And listen, those behaviors and those habits, they don't come naturally to your flesh. They don't. You have to deny your flesh because Satan is right there every single day tempting you. It is a full court press, man. And he is there just trying to, to just lie to your soul and say, hey, if it feels good, do it. Hey, you just live your truth. How many, how many, that's a popular thing today. Just live your truth. That's a dangerous, bad way to live. Brenda and I were counseling years ago with a gal. And we'd known this gal for a long time. Christian, professed Christian. She'd left her husband, and now she's shacked up with some other guy. And, and we're talking to her, and, and we're saying, listen, you, you are a follower of Christ. You know that the Bible says that you shouldn't do this. And she says, it just feels so right. And then she says, God knows my heart, and I couldn't help myself. I'm like, you mean that it's deceitfully wicked above all things? And then who can know? Yes, God does know your heart. And I said, look, you have to deny that desire. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't argue with you that it feels so good. If this is right, I don't want to be wrong, baby. This just feels right. <laughs> be wrong. Deny it. That's what Jesus is saying. Which brings us to the third requirement, listen, of being a disciple. The old man needs to die. The old man must die. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone desires to come after me, you have a continual desire to follow me. You have to continually deny yourself and take up his cross daily. That's what Jesus says. Now listen, everybody in Jesus' day knew exactly what this meant because crucifixion was, was common. The Romans, they made it very, it was very public. It was, it was very prevalent. If you were convicted to die by Rome, Everybody saw it. You had to take up your cross. And when you took up your cross, it wasn't that they just, you know, immediately nailed you to the cross. That's not how it worked. How did it work? 
You had to take up your cross. Think about Jesus. What happened before he was crucified? He had to carry his own cross down the Via de la Rosa on the way of suffering. This is what Jesus had to do. He had to bear his cross. And then, having carried his cross, then he was lifted up on that cross and crucified. And so everybody understood what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you got to take up your cross and then go through your own Via de la Rosa, the way of suffering. And, and it might be said this way, this life is the Via de la Rosa. That we're supposed to just pick up our cross and make our way this day by day. And, and they all understood this. And what they understood was, Rome made people do this at the point of a spear. Jesus is saying, you do this willingly. You say, all right, I, the problem basically is that I got to die to myself. And, and, and so this is what Jesus is saying. As his followers, we need to willingly take up our cross, just as Jesus himself did. Think about Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. They come to take him away. It's, it's the, you know, the Judas leading the pack, and you know it, Peter is right there. And he immediately jumps up to defend Jesus, pulls out his little sword, hacks off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And, and what, did, what did Jesus do? He, he miraculously heals the guy's ear, turns to Peter, and basically rebukes Peter. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. He said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he'd send them instantly. I could put a stop to all this right now, Jesus is saying, but if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 6. He said, when he, Jesus, died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Here's a question for you, takeaway. I'd ask you to write it down, take a walk with it this week. What's hindering you from being alive to God? What needs to die in your life today? Is it bitterness? Is it pride? Is it unforgiveness? Is it an addiction? Is it an ungodly relationship? Is it just your own selfishness that needs to die? What is it that needs to die today so that you can be alive to God? I love this quote by Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our commitment with Christ. And then he famously says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and to work to follow him, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. This is what we are called to do, which brings us to the fourth requirement of being a disciple. 
And that is that we need to do what Jesus commands. We need to do what Jesus commands. If anyone would desires to come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And here it is, follow me. Here's my question. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Jesus said there's a broad road that leads to life. And everybody and their brothers on the broad road. Or the, sorry, there's a, broad, there's a narrow road that leads to life and there's a broad road that leads to destruction. Everybody and their brothers on the broad road that leads to destruction. But there's very few people on that narrow road that leads to life. I think about Peter at the end of John's gospel. He thought he'd blown it. And there he was, I'm a blow it. I, 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 I failed. And so his attitude is, well, I guess I guess can't be a disciple anymore. I'm going to go back to fishing. And so Jesus shows up after the resurrection. He's going to restore Peter. And, and Peter, you know, out fishing, Jesus on the shore. Peter finally recognizes that it's the Lord, and the Lord's got everything that Peter was looking for. Peter fished all night, catches nothing. The Lord's got the fish cooked up, ready to go. Hey, come have some breakfast. And he begins to restore Peter. Peter. Do you love me? And the word that Jesus uses is an unconditional love. Hey, do you love me unconditionally? And this is what Peter had proudly said. Even though everybody else forsake you, I'll never forsake you. And so he says, hey, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter said, Lord, I love you. But he doesn't use the same word. He uses this word, I love you like a brother. I don't love you unconditionally. I love you like a brother. You've seen, I said before I loved you unconditionally, but yeah, we both know how that worked out. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. In other words, look, Peter, all right. I'll take you where you're at and I'm gonna get you where you need to be. Well, then he says again to him, second time, Peter, you love me unconditionally. You love me unconditionally. And Peter goes, Lord, you know all things. You know, I love you like a brother. Again, I want to be able to say that I love you unconditionally, but we both know I'm going to blow it. Like, you know, I blew it. Jesus says to him again, hey, tend my sheep. Peter, I get it. But, I, but, but, but you, you, you can still serve me. So Jesus says to him a third time, hey, Peter, you love me like a brother then. That's basically the, what he says. He uses that language now. And it says now, the third time, Peter was grieved. Because, yeah, there it is. Jesus is like, man, I, you know, I want you to love me unconditionally the way I love you unconditionally. But, all right, so you're going to love me in, in this, you know, state. Peter goes, yeah, Lord, I'll be faithful to love you. In other words, look, I ain't perfect. And I'm going to try to follow you. I'm going to try to serve you to the best of my ability. And Jesus' response is, all right, get to work. Go feed my lambs. Go tend my sheep. Then, right immediately after that, Jesus Jesus starts telling Peter, okay, look, you're my disciple, buddy. And so you're going to suffer. There's going to be some problems. There's going to be some hardships. There's going to be some things that you're going to go through. He starts giving him graphic detail of how Peter's going to suffer. And in the midst of it, Peter sees the Apostle John. He's like, well, what about him? (laughs) I'm going to suffer. Like, I hope he's going to suffer too. 
you know, and Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. Alan Redpath said this, when we pray thy kingdom come, it means my kingdom go. My kingdom go. What's that to you? You going through hardship? You got to pick up your cross? Our temptation, look around. Well, what about him? What about her? What about them? Why am I? What's that to you? Jesus would say, you follow me.